not investing now means not only will we lose some 2022 elections, we will lose some 2024 elections and some 2026 elections because we haven't converted people now to becoming habitual voters. And that that has a downstream impact. It is pernicious in multiple ways. And it's just hard to understand because the system we all rely upon does not show unregistered people. And so the, the majority of our political efforts are just accidentally leaving them out. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My interview today is with Jeremy Smith, founder and CEO at Civitech, a company that provides data and tools for progressive politics. I got the chance to catch up with Jeremy about what he's been doing since we last spoke. Jeremy is showing signs of being an able political entrepreneur, and he's also capable of self-reflection and of articulating his thoughts about the larger ecosystem. So I asked him a lot of questions about how he went about raising money for his firm and why he configured the ownership as he has about the state of progressive voter registration efforts and what exactly his company is doing or aspiring to do, as well as many other things relevant to political entrepreneurship that I hope will be of interest. For other leaders of progressive political tech or data firms who've been shy to talk to me, I just want to say that I strongly believe that these conversations are broadly helpful to other practitioners in the field and that In this space, we're all ultimately in it together, so I hope you'll consider sharing as well. It's a long interview, but a good one. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jeremy Smith at Civitech. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jeremy, welcome back. You've been a couple times on the show before, but not since December of 2020. So there's a lot to catch up on. I know that you've been a busy man on many fronts. Can we start by what's happened with you and with Civitech since that time? And we'll move from there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me back. It's nice to get a chance to talk to you again and to kind of like share with the ecosystem. On the personal front, December 2020 was one month after I had gotten married, and we've since had our first child uh, as of May this year. So I've been on parental leave until this week. I'm extremely happy with a healthy baby boy who just started daycare. And so he just got his first illness. So, you know, he's home right now, promptly four days into his daycare experience. Well, congratulations on starting to build the correct immunities and having a kid. That's that's the way I think about it. We're trying to like strengthen it early, get him get him exposed to people and all the all the public health problems that come with that. Take him out to a few barnyards. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as soon as he's got like his like you know COVID shots, we'll we'll get him much more in circulation. So that's the big part personal life update, and uh, it's been great because it fuses well with the company update in that we have we have done really well. The team has done really well. We brought in a lot of great leaders who have made it so that I could be away and we could role model this the right way and also um, take that personal time for me because the company has so many good people working at it now. So we have grown about two and a half times larger than when we last talked to you. So we're right, roughly 50 people now. We have brought in some other groups to join our team now. Um, so I think we, when we last spoke, we were in the process of bringing in Alloy, who has since joined our team. And we have also added TextOut and BlueLink, who are great partners of ours who are working very closely with us. And we found great alignment in, in the tools that, they, uh, that we were already using in partnership to bring those fully in-house and integrate them more and in the awesome people that we get to work with every day now. Another thing that I'm aware of that you did was raise some capital. Yeah, we decided that in order to, to embark on kind of like growing the team. So we at the end of 2020, we were doing very well. We were very stable and able to keep it sustainable at the size that we were, but looking ahead to 2022 and 2024 and the need to scale what we can do to tens of thousands of more candidates down the ballot and to local nonprofits, we knew that we weren't going to be able to help them and serve them. So we, we thought about it and we decided we would go ahead and embark to raise capital so that we could hire a team earlier and kind of try to grow in advance of the midterm elections this year and really in preparation for 2024. We did kind of a hybrid of a typical venture round with mission aligned investors primarily. So we brought in people who are essentially interested in the model that we are taking, which is as a public benefit company with a lot of progressive nonprofit ownership and a lot of employee labor ownership and mission aligned investors. That's kind of like the three legs of the ownership that we're trying to create as a model for how to better serve the interests of this community. Did you maintain a controlling interest? No. So I, I have not had a controlling interest since the very beginning. We deliberately brought in a progressive nonprofit to own one third of the company at the very opening so that we could try to establish that as a norm early. And then we have been deliberate in creating, I think, a larger employee option pool than is normal as fast as possible to to basically recognize that the people who build this product should also be ultimately large owners of it. And the model that I'm sort of targeting is an adaptation of the German public company model in Germany. I'm probably, you know, I don't know that this is required, but I believe it is either a norm or a law that public companies have a nine member board and something like 40% of the seats must be held by labor, something along those lines. I believe Elizabeth Warren proposed something similar in her presidential campaign. We've tried to take that another step, which is that ownership would be targeted at roughly 40% if we can pull that off. I think that that is a recognition of the value of employees, of the team members who actually create something and that they should have a say in the governance of it. What is the progressive nonprofit that then owns a third? So it's it's sort of like a, a group based out of Texas called Notley Ventures or Notley, I think. They have a venture arm that basically makes investments, takes the returns on that, delivers that in philanthropy in a couple of different states. So I believe they started in Texas, Colorado, and Ohio. They've had some expansion that might be in inside of those states and there might be others. And then we've brought on others, so other groups 
in the safe round that we did when we first created the company and in this most recent Series A. So we've invited some members who are like Tides sponsored or who are mission aligned. Some investors have donated their capital to a group. We tried very early on to explore doing this with like a lead investor of the movement cooperative with Josh Nussbaum and um, Kate Gage and Mahinder Nathan back then. Um, and that kind of pioneered the early thinking on this. We ultimately did not succeed at that, but would have been, I think, very happy to go that route. So. Being a public benefit corp and having that kind of non-standard ownership which may be a very good fit for the progressive space. Did that affect the fundraising? Was it a complicated Absolutely. thing to explain? Like, tell me a little about going out with that kind of non-standard uh, cap table, et cetera. All of the above. So I think uh, we're able to like, you know, make our case that we are raising and like delivering value to shareholders who invest. That is that is clear as well. But it is a it is one of the three big objections that we receive from investors. And I think that other people will be familiar with at least two of them. Number one is partisanship. Like, why are you not serving half of your market? And uh, it's like, well, we don't want to. Um, it's like a choice. It's our mission. It's enshrined in our ethos and our hiring and the people and like. It, it, but it's also practical. Like you, you can't sell stealth tech to both the U.S. and China. It defeats the point, right? And if you're trying to sell data advantages, it's sort of disingenuous to pretend that you could sell to both and that they would take it and not like see that there's little value in doing business with you. So I think there's it. Most people are responsive to that by making the defense industry comparison. That's a way that I've helped to help them gauge that this is this is its own market. It's also that the products are very different. There's not a big clamoring, I think, from Republican candidates to do voter registration and vote by mail expansion and like voting rights, you know, tools. I think there's valid economic arguments that you can make. And then we also just made it clear that this is like part of who we are and what makes us successful is that we are trusted in our market and we know our market. We were able to, I think, address that, but it immediately screened out a bunch of people for us, which is great. Number one thing would happen is like we'd have a partner who's very excited and they definitely want to do the deal. They like the economics. They like our alignment. They go to their team and they find out that some of their fellow partners are not aligned on the mission and it's an immediate veto. And that's fine. Like that's we appreciate them identifying that very quickly. Um, so I think that that it is a major re, like thing. It affects who you can go to and it, that immediately shrinks it down. The next thing is cyclicality, which I think is the most familiar problem that anybody trying to run a stable nonprofit or for-profit company in this space would know. And the cyclicality of interest and of funding and of clients is just a, it's something that requires really good planning. It requires creating products that can have, find some value in like non-surge times during federal elections and, or like make, like banking enough money to essentially keep, keep and maintain your team. Or some companies go the other route, which is to have very boom and bust hiring. We did not want to pursue that because building really complicated data and interface products is not something that lends itself well to boom and bust hiring. You don't want to be trying to create new data evaluations and tools in the last two months of an election. It's just not very practical. And so for us, that's not a good fit and it's not the ethos we want to have with our team. So, but that cyclicality is a major challenge in talking to investors who want like, how are you going to make more money every month, month after month? And what we have to show them is that we don't measure it that way. We came up with our own metric of 
looking at two-year averages and comparing odd year quarter one to the next odd year quarter one and odd year quarter three. And that made a lot of sense to them to show we would graph it out and say, we're improving every time when you measure the correct thing. And the analogy I would draw is to tax software. So TurboTax and H&R Block um, are services that people don't, I don't pay for that year round, right? I try to use the free one as often as possible <laughs> during my life. Um, but the, uh, less and less, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. So especially being married, like more complicated now. So I've got like new things I've got to figure out on these fronts. Um, but basically that kind of thing is, is similar. It's there's a surge in usage at a set time by law, by statute. And then there's a, um, a reduction for a while. But you can compare whether or not the company is improving and um, making a return on investment over a larger measurement period. And so I think sophisticated investors had no problem with this, but there are a lot of um, investors who I think are also probably good and sophisticated, but they have a cookie cutter approach to evaluating thousands of deals. So it's just like, do the numbers hit these three categories? If not, we're just not interested. And so that, again, immediately screened out a bunch of people. And then the third point to your main question here is that like the unusual structure and goals that we have are different. We fought harder on governance and gave ground on economics. So, so for those who are listening who might not work in this kind of space or like or be in the fundraising realm in for-profit company, you have two levers you can trade typically, which are economics. You can negotiate the price that you are selling shares for, and you can negotiate control or like the governance and the rules around how a change in direction or a change in personnel can take place. We fought harder to maintain control mechanisms that keep this safe for our ecosystem and gave ground on the economics arguments we could make as a trade to say that it's important to us and that this be trusted and that this go in this direction of like more employee ownerships and more employee stock options and inclusion of like our clients as shareholders, which I think is a really great balancing act with the economic like case, which is that we think we can help make a return on investment for shareholders and we can return some value to them. We will give them a better price as a incentive. So that all three were relevant factors. They were major negotiation points. And there's something that, you know, if you're uh, working in that, uh, in this space, that's, the, those are the things you have to kind of like talk about and prepare for. And so we, you know, we built slides and documents to explain each of these and to make it clear that upfront. So I just try to send it to investors upfront, like, if these are your objections and you can't get over them for these arguments, we're not a good fit for you. And I think that that was very helpful for us. I mean, I've been talking, as you know, to a lot of people who are in this general political tech space, nonprofit tech space. And I've been very interested to see the experimentation with business models and business categories. What came to mind was the Network for Good model, which was a nonprofit that spun out of for-profit, but the nonprofit owned the for-profit and then re reaped the rewards when that was sold with Bill uh, Strathman. I talked to him about it. But there's been a lot of people who are building tech in a nonprofit or in some hybrid or it's a pack. And a, it's one of the complexities of being an entrepreneur in a mission space like this, in a partisan space like this. And it's, it's interesting to see how you navigated it. There's the complication of all of these elements we just talked about. And then there's also this campaign finance compliance issue, right? Like what I found is that like from the nonprofit side is it, there are 
mechanical ways to sell services as a nonprofit and to do that. There is confusion and sometimes outright rejection from hard side actors who worry about whether that will be coordination or don't have time to like kind of dive into those models. One of the models that I did not like know about that I think I may have chosen differently when I got started is the the movement cooperative and Alloy and I think a few others have done this, which is a nonprofit that just upfront tells the IRS that they're going to be partisan and violate their tax exemption. And there's no penalty other than you have to pay taxes. And I was just like, I didn't know you could just do that. I thought it was like a rule, like a law that you can't, but as opposed to more of just like, no, you can just pay taxes and go and then be basically a nonprofit that is is running like a for-profit, but just has that that kind of governance st- structure. Didn't know that was a thing, and uh, and some people told me about it later, and I was like, that's very cool. That's that is a clever that is a clever model. So I agree. I think there's a a number of ways that people have tried to solve for this, and I think it affects ultimately what kinds of support you can get financially, and, and especially capitalization. So if you go more of the nonprofit route, you have to have like a big money donor who is willing to just give up that money for that cause. And I think there are lots of those. I think we've been really successful at uh, hybridizing it and getting capital from people who are aligned, but also hoping that maybe they'll make some money back and wielding that to help voters register. And being a public benefit company, we can make it very clear in our mission, like in our bylaws, that we are not here to only maximize shareholder value. We are here specifically to increase access to democracy. And for us, it's by helping people register to vote, helping them run for office and helping them win their campaigns or advocacy efforts. And that's enshrined in legal bylaws that like, you know, it would take a lot like employees plus clients or employees plus shareholder, like uh, investors would have to overrule at some point. And I, I think we've tried to make that hard. We've tried to introduce friction at least so that it is protecting the interest of the audience we're trying to serve. Yeah, I was just actually going to ask about the B Corp and how that fit in and mainly whether any of these things actually change your behavior. At the end of the day, a lot of this is driven by the CEO. And if you're a profit maximizing CEO, if you're building this for your personal wealth, it's a different thing than if you're just your nature is focused on the market. You put these in place because that's the person that you are. Is there a behavioral difference at the end of the day because of the structure? I, I, I don't think so. I think to your point, like these were desires I had. My hope is like, if this works, I hope it's a good role model for others to say, you don't have to accept that the paradigm is like grow at all costs, right? Or if you have a sustainable thing that you want to make, real in the world, um, you can do it in a way that serves the interests of the people who build it. To your point, like I come from a background where teamwork is paramount. And, you know, my like combat experience in the army is such that no one person is like the sole hero of the story. It just, it isn't, that's not real. Like it takes a team, it takes a village to do anything well. And my goal is to make sure that that um, can be like, part of like the company ethos. And I think that to your point, like I am not interested in maximizing profits. So I'm interested in like winning elections. And so how can we design for that? And so I think from a practical standpoint, no, what I will say is like a very real responsibility that I have felt that I probably didn't necessarily 
fully understand at the beginning is that as more team members join the company and they become shareholders, as more clients join the cap table, as more investors join the cap table, I feel responsible for all of the, the trust that they put into that. So if people are putting their money or their time and their energy into it, I feel that it is my obligation to deliver something of value to them, whether that is the mission success and the impact reports that we produce and the actual work that we do or looking after their money. I, my feeling is that no one owed us their money and we have a trust relationship of like we're using that money well for this purpose and we are stewarding it so it does not collapse and get wiped out because then we have no impact and no financial value for them. And so I, I feel a greater responsibility to, I think, more people for more purposes. And that causes me to think through, like, how can we adopt profit sharing mechanisms so that some of these groups can get some money back if we have profit. And that's, that's actually something we did. So in 2020, we unexpectedly made a profit. And the first thing we did was divide up a significant part of that evenly to uh, all of the employees who had made that possible. We kept a lot of it to then make sure we could preserve everybody's job through um, 2021. But it was like a moment of like recognition. What if we made this the norm is that in the event that this happens, it gets shared out. And I think you could do that in a hybrid of a dividend to shareholders and a reward to employees as a bonus. And I think as, especially as employees become more and more shareholders, the value to them is even greater. So I, I think there's good models here. We're too early to have tried all of them and to be successful at them yet. I, I agree with you that I think it's ultimately a reflection of the choices that are made. And I think we were fortunate in that I had some good role models and mentors to look to who were able to talk to me about what is, what is a public benefit company? What is a B Corp? And what does that mean? Just as a plug for B Corps, like B Labs, the nonprofit certifies public benefit companies to say that this is a B Corp that's actually living up to the point of a public benefit company. And one thing that I would encourage other people to do is to look at converting to this model. It was extremely helpful for me to take their quiz when I started the company. You can't apply until you're at least a year old. So what I did is I went through their pre-application process to just like learn what it would look like. And there's hundreds of questions you have to answer. And they had things that I had just never thought through, but I thought were like, that's a really good idea. And an example is they wanted to know if you track the diversity of the vendors that you contract with and that you use for your services. And I was like, we should do that. That's a good idea. Like, and there's value to like choosing locally and what are the ownership structures and what are their values and are those B Corps? And so it just gave me some good ideas early on that allowed us to, I think, make a better culture because it had so many like enriching ideas embedded in that ethos that we could just take and we could adopt as best practices and not have to come up with all on our own. And I think it's so hard to create any new nonprofit or startup of any kind like your focus is not on vendor management in the beginning, right? You're trying to prove something of value that you're offering. And so if you can have, oh, this is a pretty easy model to follow. I have found that really valuable for us. And I think it has made our culture better. Do you feel that you're fully aligned with your investors? I mean, when I read a couple of the press releases, like Higher Ground said, we invested to take on NGP Van. But another thing came out saying, that you're very interested in collaborating and not duplicating stuff that's out there. Conversations you and I have had indicated the latter. What do you think they were trying to buy when they invested in you, Higher Ground, and your other investors? I don't actually remember that specific instance from Higher Ground Labs. 
and most of our investors are very aligned on this idea of the, the double bottom line, the impact that we are having. So the goal is first and foremost, serve the interests of like voters and elected officials. And we try to think about that in the lens of like what kind of products we make. Do they actually help someone complete the process? It's hard to measure outcomes versus like effort. This is normal in the army too. It's like we would measure the number of patrols. And did you do more patrols than the last team? But the question is like, what is the point of this patrol? Is there a goal? Are we trying to achieve something? So in politics, it's like uh, if you hear about how many knocks a campaign did, that is useful as a kind of measurement of like, are we producing our plan? But what's more interesting is what's the conversion rate and is it effective? Like, are we getting votes out of it? And I think that this is um, something that we try to think about a lot is did someone actually get registered? We send, we, we literally connect web tools and mail and texting tools and pieces of paper and mail and in-person things because we're interested in, does it ultimately serve the voter's interest, not merely our financial interest? And so I would say our investors are very aligned with that. Many of them have their own ideas, of course, and they, they offer them all the time on like, what could we be doing? And, and in particular, I think it comes from a well-meaning place of like, please, for the love of God, win some more elections, right? Like that is like what people are trying to say. But the answer is you can't fully align with, you know, dozens of different entities. And, and so I would say that like, we take all of that as feedback and advice. And especially we think about it in terms of like, are we communicating clearly? If we're not saying what we actually mean and other people are hearing something different, I feel it is our obligation to say it. So we are very focused on being collaborative, not on defeating any particular commercial player. We think of ourselves as in competition with Republican officials and efforts because politics has real world outcomes that are it's it is harming people's lives when we fail at this. And so that is where we are like very focused. So in our view, we have to work with others because no one group can do this alone. On that point exactly, when I've talked to other people in the space about you and Civitech, the most common question I get is, what are they doing? Like they raised a bunch, what are they building? What are you building, Jeremy? Yeah, totally, totally understand <laughs> that. Uh, we we are building a set of campaign management tools and a campaign meaning more than just electoral, but like advocacy efforts or marketing campaigns from nonprofits as well who want to want to achieve an electoral outcome um, oriented towards making the process more accessible. What that means is like tools to actually find and help people register to vote, tools to help them be able to vote by mail, to participate in the process, to, to actually cast their vote to cure their ballots, to run for office. They go together because those are all legal, logical systems that you can build into a form. So you can have a form that takes people's information and it helps them to register to vote against a complicated data table of you live in this county in this state and you're this old and you're, whether or not you qualify for the disability status in Texas affects whether or not you can vote by mail. And that is really well suited to a computer and to like a, a tooling paradigm. So we are building like a, what is intended to be a full campaign in a box set of tools, but we are agnostic about the individual components. We don't, we're not looking to like control and have our own email tool and budget tool and fi fundraising and payment processor and field and canvassing and everything else. The goal is to partner well with others and help sell their data, their analytics, their services. Our goal is a, a system by which anybody can organize their own community. And that means like a literal list builder and map view of their local area and their district or whatever that might be. 
and an understanding of what's available, what is in the voter file, what is in Van, what is in Target Smart, and how can they you know use these things. So I would say like I understand the point here, which is that like we have a few pieces built of a whole, and I would say that we're just early, like we're only three years into building a complicated set of things. And what we have built are a series of forms that allow people to be better able to vote and tools to better get people to run for office. And in particular, to identify people who are left out, who are not included in the representation of their community and who are not on the voter file because they haven't been registered to vote before or they have moved or they have become a citizen. We are actively connecting tools together and data sets so that we can identify missing pieces in our existing paradigm. And I think to us, that looks like a, like a, like a, essentially a campaign management dashboard by which you can, here's my target smart data and what's in it, but here's also my thing that my county party gives me or that ballot ready provides or an email tool from action network or MailChimp or whatever, whatever else they might need. It's sort of like this all needs to work. Is, and together. And my view is that it's not our place to tell the candidate exactly what to use. We should be supporting them in a broad array. It's certainly been a multi-decade or essentially since the second wave of political campaign software problem of integration of tools, especially post-Trump proliferation of tons of new different specific technologies. And I think it says your campaign OS, that's the, the, the name, but like, it strikes me as a very strategic place in the market to be the lens through which the information is viewed. And I suspect in the long run, if, if things go your way, you know, uh, decision-making is made through that. Yes, that, and that is correct. That, for strategic reasons to win elections, but also we think it's good product positioning in terms of making our offering valuable. And the way we think about that is being upstream, like when someone is starting to run for office, like we want them to come to us so that we can arm them with information about like how to begin better so that they have a better shot in the end. Lots of companies would love to sell their products earlier in the cycle, but the late money issue is like pernicious. It it means that campaigns are getting a third to half of all their funds in the last like 60 days. And that's kind of a bad time to plan out your whole campaign. <laughs> we want to like make it cheap and very affordable so that people start with it early so that we can help them be prepared for those moments better. And I think strategically that's vital. It does put our, I think our offering in a very good position because to your point, we are trying to eventually like be opinionated about, Hey, this, this, program you're running is working better, put put more effort into that. And the reason is because there's no one size fits all solution. For a hundred thousand elections a year of different kinds of people running and different audiences and different sizes, there are some things that are true about like this type of social pressure mail and this type of persuasion audience that are generically true on average, but it's not realized at the level of you and your neighborhood to your 10 neighbors, right? Like you know better than us what you're seeing. And I think we need to arm the people who actually do most of the work, like the volunteer class and the precinct chairs and the county chairs with some tools. And I'll give you an analogy of like the reason we are doing this from my experience and my background in the military of there's a, a, a term or phrase 
every soldier is a sensor. And the idea is to remind people that like every person has a brain and eyes and hands and ears like they, like they are, they are able to take in information, synthesize it, process it, make decisions, act on their own. And so we try to build tools that are communication channels so that they can be communicating, but operating independently. And that is like the strength of, you know, the NATO model of decentralized command versus the kind of old school totalitarian model of top down, because no one person is smart enough or fast enough to be able to do that. And I think we should have a similar approach in that our volunteers on the ground know their communities better than us. Like if I parachute in on a presidential campaign to a random state that I don't live in, I may have a lot of knowledge to bring to bear, but the people who really know who to talk to next and how to convince their own friends and neighbors are the, the ones who live there. And so I think our goal is to push the data down, not to necessarily displace any particular existing player, but to make their tools much more widely available. And my hope is what that means is that everybody who's selling services and tools and data ends up being able to make more money, which makes them more sustainable. And we have less churn of the actual systems that we're using to compete on campaigns. I actually proposed a geographic view of campaign data back in like 1990. I think you were right. You were right all the way back then. <laughs> but it's interesting to see different people taking different swings at getting there. And I'll definitely be following what you're up and, to. And I to your point. Yeah, go ahead. It's because you solved some things that I don't have to, right? Yeah. Like that, like I'm here now and this, this, you're, this you're not doing compliance. <laughs> right. right, exactly. <laughs> and you you solved a, a more like a more difficult thing I know nothing about. So we are happy to work with that. A big piece of this, when I started, uh, like we surveyed widely about like what is going on. I didn't just want to create something. It was sort of like I was looking where I could go help and realizing that I think there's a gap that I know something about. Um one question about like the company, where it is and compared to the vision. So like my, if I had to hazard a guess, you're not making money on campaign OS and it isn't out there much yet. You're making money on, on data and the registration stuff, which you came out the door with. Is that right? And how do you think about the transition along with money you've raised? Does this sort of fund a transition over time to a more software-based model or integrated model? How do you think about the course of the company in that regard? Yes, that's exactly right. And it, that was planned for. It's the idea that building a complex data system that needs to process a lot of other people's data and show it and learn to do so and make it cheap, it's not going to make a lot of money out the door. But we have this particular thing we're very good at in identifying people who are not included in like voter registration and tools to actually get them registered better. I think we have done a very good job of that. And therefore we have an offering that makes money and is profitable that we then use. And we put that money towards building things that we think need to exist in the long term. And the hope is that over time, if you build up enough subscriptions at $50 a month, you eventually end up in a place that is sustainable. But that is a bad startup is to try something that small. It's a very hard road to go if that's the only thing you're doing, because it's just hard to monetize enough to pay people salaries. It's hard to afford a team at that level. And so the answer is yes, but I, with a caveat that we we prepared to launch and launched Campaign OS in February of 2020 with a very town hall and in-person and canvassing centric approach promptly into a global pandemic that made people afraid to breathe on one another. So what we had to do was like 
make a practical choice, which was to shift development to other long-term projects and things that could help more in 2020, like mail. And we adjusted to the fact of a pandemic. So what I would say is like giant asterisk on the fact that the pandemic's effect cannot be overstated as to like, yeah, it changed the the timing. And like you would see, I think, our tool much more widely in use right now had there not been that pandemic. But we are relaunching it next year in the spring. And there's people using prototypes of it now and we're testing and what we're doing is confirming that this use case that we designed and we're launching then is still valid. And we're making changes and improvements because we've been fortunate to bring other people onto our teams that have solved pieces of that. So I would say like, it's a little bit of both. It's the strategy was there. It was very clear. I think it was going faster, but then the pandemic changed. It, it changed the calculus because we went in person heavy. And I think that that didn't bear out well in the pandemic. Sounds like a core of what you're offering is this sort of set operation of all the people minus the people that are already in the voter file. And they're just like, take a list of everybody and subtract the li- the voter file list. What is stopping uh, the voter file vendors from providing it? Or are they? What What is the... What is the insider view of what's going on with that data and why that is proving to be so valuable? Yeah, I think this is a good question. And the answer is like, it's more nuanced. You're exactly right. You can start at that. Like, what is the inverse of the voter file that you can, but the problem is, okay, where is that list of total people? And um, I think the vendors do a good job of buying uh, commercial data sets that are available from your credit card bureaus and Axiom and Live ramp and companies like that that sell people data for marketing purposes. They buy what's available and then they try to match it against the voter file, screen that out, and offer that as a list. The difficulty is like the credit card bureaus necessarily have limits on what data they can sell you because of privacy laws. So there's there's some data that's really old that they can get away with selling you, like 15 years old. But nowadays you need like opt-ins to get the premium data. And the problem is that we have this disconnect between our vendors and our um, um, like the implementation of the actual marketing outreach of tools to voters. And so groups that have millions of opt-ins are not taking those opt-ins and shopping them to vendors who would sell them more useful data. There's a little bit of like a missing gap there on like the premium quality data that could be acquired. And I think there are lots of good people who who solve that in various ways. But, but that actually, that's only part of the answer. And, and not everyone information is available because either the credit card is with some other member of their family or they don't have a credit card or whatever, right? They're not included in commercial data sets, in particular, young, younger people who don't have a lot of history yet. What we have helped to solve is this like decentralized data of some, there are some data sets in various forms that you can get through public means or commercial means but you have to do it tens of thousands of times and it comes in different formats and you have to standardize it and ingest it and array it and match it. And it's a hard problem. You're getting CDs and thumb drives and pictures of PDFs and like you need to build for that. And what we have done very well is to take what is a brute force problem, apply a brute force solution and then standardize it into an offering. We looked at what other people were doing. We bought that available data and then we went after how can we help improve slices further and we did tests and those worked. So we, we went harder and harder at that problem and we succeeded at it. We didn't necessarily know that that was going to work. We just thought maybe there's something here. Can you tell me how the 
various acquisitions that you've made fit into the vision that you've articulated? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in each case, we were like a partner with this group who like has something of value. So uh, Alloy, for example, was building another voter file vendor. But in particular, what was useful to us on voter registration is the faster cadence of acquiring that from the states at a weekly or monthly level instead of quarterly or other reasons. And so while other vendors like have better and more data on like the people that they're processing, and that is very valuable for GOTV and all the analytics and planning, that is, I think, well solved. Voter registration was not well solved. And in particular, knowing if an effort is working in real time. So the ability to see this week, did Jeremy end up registered? And if you screen that out, as like an example, we can measure this. Um, the it typically results in about like a 5.7% difference in staleness of just some people who've died or moved away or moved in from whatever is on the current voter file that we can see in van or something. And what we cared about that Alloy was doing was like, hey, this faster data helps us solve a problem that makes our programs more efficient. We save our clients an additional 5% of money. We get a 5% efficiency gain in outcome. That's a nice combo. And in particular, at the time, it appeared like this would be the only affordable option for a city council level candidate or a small school board race. We had seeded a lot of this data vin like a data sourcing ground to Alloy because they had a lot more money and they were planning to do it. So we were like, sure, you do it. We'll partner with you. And we also still partner with Target Smart and Catalyst, of course, for, for different reasons. And again, because our clients are using different combos. So we need to be sophisticated in able to build the best list we can for them and make recommendations from whatever they are already paying for, because we don't want them to have to pay twice or three times for something. So Alloy coming, bringing that in made a lot of sense in terms of we don't we can discontinue the competitive commercial acquisition elements and focus on a faster uptake of the voter file and really a lot of really talented people who are a great addition to our team and make our company better. And so that's Alloy. Um, Textout was also a partner of ours. They were the, really the first to, to my understanding, take this turnkey approach where instead of giving someone a tool and you have to get your volunteers to all tap to transmit the texts, they would have a group of people do it for you as like a, as an offering. And those people get really good at it. They become very well trained in conversations with voters. And it was very valuable for deep canvassing and the kind of work we do with talking to people about voter reg and vote by mail and the legal impl implications. That was like a really good fit for us and working with major partners who didn't have a volunteer following, but wanted to send millions of texts in conjunction with other things like mail or canvassing, like stitching together a series of contact points from knocking on someone's door or sending the piece of mail and following up. And so when they came to us and asked us to you know, bring them on board, we, we looked at it and said, this is a good thing. This is the only, at the time, um, example of a group that does this. And we think it's really valuable and it's a really good fit. And we've worked closely together and these people are amazing and we would love to work with them. So it was sort of like, now we have this, this piece of connecting text messaging to digital form signup, mail, uh, canvassing, so that we can we can synchronize forms of contact and stay in touch with voters. And we think that that's really valuable. And then the last one was Blue Link. Similarly, like worked closely with them, found a lot of value in what they were doing to make data more portable. And in particular, they have a library of more than 60 connections and integrations to different tools. 
a lot of different clients using those. And we thought that that's really valuable. It solves a problem we face in the future for how to make that data portable between different applications and to be a good management dashboard to pull from many sources and to be tool agnostic. And so we thought that this is, again, very valuable and should exist. And it fits within this paradigm that we are trying to move towards. And so I think each time it was sort of valued allies coming to us and saying, would you consider uh, bringing us in? And we thought, hey, these are we, we've worked with them really well. This is a really good fit. And it, it co- accomplishes something towards the march, towards that full realized product. The key for us is that like we didn't we didn't set out or like, you know, go after anybody. It's it, we, we were happy in our collaborative mode. And then when a decision point came, we were able to analyze it and make that choice and work together well because we trusted those people. We worked with them. It was a huge honor for us to be able to get some of them to come work for us. And it fits in the larger product vision of can we offer a like fully fleshed suite of tools through either partnerships or internally to anyone who's running for office at an affordable price for them. That is where we want to end up. Um, and we are just increasingly, you know, an order of magnitude more people every year. We're only three years in. So, you know, like can give us a little bit of time, I think, to realize that fully. On the subject of acquisitions, can you tell me how you think about future acquisitions and what you think about the state of consolidation in political tech and where you think it ought to be, you know, which will most serve our side? Yeah, that's totally fair. I think it's a big, complex topic. One of the biggest problems, I think, is that it is very hard for new players to come in with a good idea and get established and have a chance to succeed at it because of the cyclicality, because of the the big trust walls that exist and the cognitive load and the fatigue that candidates and staffers have when they get pitched on like a hundred new ideas. They already are getting pitched by like general consultants who have good services to offer. And now they're getting pitched on dozens to hundreds of technical solutions and they don't know very much about them and they might be totally new to this and it can be very overwhelming. And I think I'll bring to mind the Higher Ground Labs report graphic of the state of campaign technology is full of logos, right? As like, here's, here is like a collection of uh, several hundred things you should consider. And like, that is a lot to put on someone who is running for office for the first time. And I don't think it's, um, it's not a good solution for anyone. It's not a good solution for the vendor. It's not a good solution for the candidate or the staff. And, um, but it's a practical reality because how else do you try a new thing except to go to people, try to find a fit and a value proposition that works for them. And so my thinking is that there's lots of good, what I'll call like widget style improvements. This is a thing that should totally exist. It should absolutely be a part of how our total conception of a campaign works, but it's a really hard business model. It's like something that doesn't probably survive on its own. In a more hostile economic environment, I'd say like people would have like a buy versus build mentality. Like, could we just rebuild that ourselves cheaper? We try to generally avoid that because like, we're not really interested in trying to undercut someone else. We're, we're, we're very interested in like, can we partner with them? And then if, if it came to it, would it be a good idea to merge these things to basically reduce the overhead of like having to pay for um, like all the various services that go into taking good care of a staff and the technical tools for your project management and everything else. There's some like savings you can get that are, that are more minor. We don't really look at it in terms of like, oh, like we want to like get rid of a bunch of personnel. I recognize that that's a valid way to like save costs on a total thing. That's not really our approach. And we're not really, I don't think we're a sophisticated acquisition player per se. We just have had good partners who were like, yeah, these people 
this is a this is a good fit and we think we can make this work. We're we're probably open to it, but it's not our goal. It's not we're not trying to stack it all together for us to lead. And I think um, it's more about we would like consider opportunities as they come. We're focused on what we're trying to do. And so I, what I will say is like at each time you do this, it distracts you from your core offering and it has to be a good proposition then to make that worth doing, which isn't always the most favorable business deal for the people who built the other tool. If you're buying them and you need to be incentivized to do so because it's a distraction for you. I think more about focus now than I did in the beginning, because in the beginning we were prototyping ideas to test what works and we want to see is this a good idea or not? And we had a great tool that we thought was brilliant that matched social media handles to the voter file and could pull all this data and analyze what people were saying on social media, build a profile of them, give it to a campaign to do one-on-one conversation with that person and see like, they really talk a lot about the environment and could not get adoption because it was like very complex to use and wasn't something people were familiar with and didn't necessarily have the staff for. We thought it was a really cool idea. We thought it was really effective the way we did it. We did lots of testing with it and it just didn't, it didn't pan out in reality. And so we, we discontinued it. And we thought a lot about that in the beginning, about prototyping ideas, testing it out, then going for it when it, once it had proven valuable. And so now though, we have a bunch of things that are working. We have a path to make those really accessible. We want to focus on that more. And so I think we're really cognizant of the added cost of like technical debt and bringing people in and making sure that like we hybridize those teams and everybody's part of one team and one culture. And we've been very deliberate about that. And I think we've been fairly successful, but those are fairly small. And, and I would say like, there's a cost anytime you do that. And we don't really have like a, a set model. It's more of a, if it, if it seems sensible, let's talk about it. And then really hash out, is this a good choice for both parties? One thing that I've been curious about is Alloy is well known to have been funded in great part by Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn. I've also heard that his his money came through higher ground to you and that that was important. And I saw that Tamer, who is one of his political advisors, is on your board now. What is his role or his team's role in building Civitech and what kind of asset is it to you to have the advice from that quarter? Well, I, I would say like, you know, I, I have never spoken with Reed Hoffman and he doesn't have a role per se in Civitech. I don't want to speak too broadly for him. You've talked to Dimitri and other people who I think work directly for, into Tamer. But what I would say is like Tamer has been a supporter of ours from the beginning and has is somebody who recommended us to lots of other people we're a for-profit, so it's not necessarily the same comparison, right? Like we're, we weren't pursuing them for money, like as a donation or something. Really like uh, Higher Ground Labs was an early investor and supporter and a really great partner here in this case to own that equity stake for the, the sake of the movement from something that Tamer, I think, was interested in doing. And so he is the champion who's been on our board and helps level us up and to think about the larger movement and the needs that he's hearing from people. Well, this is a new a new relationship that began this year uh, with him on our board. And I think it's been really valuable for us. And, you know, Reed Hoffman is not giving us instructions or requirements or anything ever. I appreciate other things that he is doing in the movement and in particular funding lots and lots of ideas and projects. And I think he has people that give him advice and he empowers them and gives them money to go try things. And so like my my very limited understanding is that Dimitri and Tamer and a whole bunch of people are doing good work, deploying capital to lots of ideas, planting seeds, seeing if it grows. 
but that doesn't, it, it's not, you know, there's no like trace back, there's no information, there's no um, otherwise relationship there. It's that, you know, Tamer is the person we report to and are like I report to as the CEO on the, one of the people on the board. It is correct to say that Reed Hoffman like gave money to one of those vehicles that I think, you know, from Tamer and to Higher Ground Labs and Higher Ground Labs made an investment in us. You're now very close and wired into the efforts to register people to vote across the country. Are we doing enough? What What is the state of kind of the registration infrastructure? There's lots of people operating in it with tools and data and numerous nonprofits and other entities that do it locally and more broadly. What do you see from your perspective? What I'm seeing is that there's been a, a, a pretty dramatic downgrade in investment to those groups. Like they have a lot less money. There's been a lot of turnover of people and leaders. Part of that is normal. I think part of that is like people worked really hard for four years to try to beat Trump and like put a lot of their lives into that. And they're now off going to have families or go make money somewhere else or, you know, recharge or whatever. And there's also, we won the, the White House and there's a new administration. There's a lot of people who go back into that work and go ahead. I mean, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt at all. It's just when I hear that and I sort of hear about donor fatigue and activist fatigue and voter fatigue on our side in a certain sense, it puts my hair on end given the energy on the other side around it, it should. they think it should they lost the election and by foul means, right? And and everything right. else. And, and so what I would say is the reason I think this is really problematic is that it's not static. I think there's a there's a way that like MSNBC or CNN presents their like election dashboards when they like will show a county and they'll be like in 2004, it was this percentage. And and my thing is like every four years, like something like a quarter of the voter file is basically changing. You have 16 million people turning like 18, four and a half million people becoming citizens, like 13 million people dying. You have 30 million people like households changing states. And like a total of like 180 million households moving. Some people move more than once, right? Some don't cross a county line, so they keep voting in that county. It's like really different people that are actually voting every every cycle. And there's churn. And part of it is there's legal changes. Like thousands of laws were passed in the last two years to change eligibility on voter registration, vote by mail, where you can have a polling location, how you can vote, both good and bad, like a bunch of blue states and like secretaries of state, like Jocelyn Benson and Jenna Griswold and Katie Hobbs did like amazing things to open that up. Right. But you also have a whole lot of states that very deliberately made the process harder. And so it takes work to counteract those things. And we're investing a lot less in it. And it has a pernicious effect. Now, I think there was massive fatigue for basically 2021. We saw a huge decrease in people registering to vote and people being interested and participating in elections across like Virginia, New Jersey and like specials. But then in post Dobbs, we're seeing like a giant uptick again of like a resurging interest that tilts towards women and the younger women are registering to vote at historic rates. So that is good. But a historic rate increase of a few months does not undo like 20 months of essentially like a negative outcome and like a decrease. It is good that that is happening now. It will not be enough. And I think we will lose some elections this year where we just didn't expand the electorate. And had we continued the kinds of programs in 2018 and 2020 that were around, we would have won those races. And so 
I think your hair should be on end. It is a problem. And I think what we all misunderstand about this is that people changing states, it's not their obligation like for us to say you should figure out the esoteric rules of your new state. I mean, obviously, that's like a practical thing some people have to do, but we can help and we can all put systems and uh, energy and, and create better infrastructure around this. And so I, I think it is a massive problem. We are definitely seeing a huge impact from it. It's just hard because like whose problem is it to solve, right? Like who is the person in charge of progressive politics to turn to and say you should spend 40 percent more money on voter edge? It's a complicated paradigm and there's new fights against disinformation. Those are valuable. There's infrastructure building and like centralization of these data warehouses. Those are valuable. New tools are valuable. Hiring staff at state parties and county parties is crucial. And we do not invest in that. And we have had massive turnover of like state party staff and we are not supporting them at any kind of level. So I would say there are groups who wanted to do this and there were staffs who were interested in it and did not get like any serious funding. And so those people are gone. And and that has downstream impacts. So here's a quick example of this. Like we've tested this and I believe the Voter Participation Center has tested this. You can measure through random control trials the increase in the number of votes you get in registering someone two or four years ago on this election. And we we have like long running studies and protected control groups that do that. And I want to say on Analyst Institute, people can look up these kind of results. If you reach out to say like, um, just to give like easy math here, I think it's like 500,000 people and successfully register a bunch of them. You might get like uh, 250,000 people registered. You might get like a kind of 50 to 100,000 net votes, but you will also get like 20,000 net votes two years later and 15,000 net votes four years later. And not investing now means not only will we lose some 2022 elections, we will lose some 2024 elections and some 2026 elections because we haven't converted people now to becoming habitual voters. And that that has a downstream impact. It is pernicious in multiple ways. And it's just hard to understand because the system we all rely upon does not show unregistered people. And so the, the majority of our political efforts are just accidentally leaving them out. Do you look at what the other side is doing in Voter Reg? Yes, I am subscribed to most of their major organizations and like private donor groups when possible. Or we have friends who are who send us those elements. And, you know, like Carl Rove in particular in Texas, there was something called the Voter Expansion Project. We look at some of their efforts. They learn from us, too. So they, they have their own efforts. They do a lot of mail related work. Um, in, if you know, when we had this social media tool where we could see what people were talking about in real time, um, talking about conducting voter registration and doing in-person voter reg things in the 2020 cycle, overwhelmingly a, a Republican group and like one particular leader, I guess like kind of a counterpart to me or something, they basically just kept meeting in person. And they had a bunch of young people train up to be what's called deputy registrars here in Texas. We have this arcane, stupid law that requires you to be uh, deputized by your county. They were training people in person to do this and then going out and registering people very aggressively. We outperformed them with our methods and scale, but that that particular domain that they did, they beat everybody and they registered vastly more people in person than we did. And I would say, I don't think that they have the same level of investment um, near, like in all the types of groups that we do. But what I think is different is their approach to staffing. They hire people, they pay them more, they keep them around, they build expertise, they devise innovations and like they bring in like best practices from other marketing channels. And I think there's some elements of their, of their digital efforts that are just hard to measure and know if it's working. 
but we're seeing like major efforts to you know register specifically republicans we want to counteract those and and match them i think everybody should be able to vote but of course we want to deploy our scarce resources to maximize our side's chances and so uh we do pay attention to this and uh in particular um we try to monitor what the top groups are devoting their money and resources to and as a quick example i'll say this i'll go to an event like they'll have a campaign kickoff or something and i want to see what apps they're using and what do they recommend for relational and canvassing and they have a better canvassing app than we do which is because it has you can cut your own turf or be assigned turf you can see unregistered people or registered people you can mark things like this person has a yard sign and it's like really easy and obvious i would say the tool is like it's it's a little hard on UX and very small font and the volunteers. Uh, I think know, they have multiple canvassing tools. They definitely do, but this is this is one, one example here in Texas, like as like a as just like legitimately a better combination of all of our canvassing tools. And um, I don't think they have the volunteer force to actually make that matter enough. So I think that that's a benefit. But another interesting thing is that all of their volunteers are much younger than ours. Everybody at these events is probably in their like upper 20s and like 30s. And then like probably someone in their 50s usually is like a kind of old hand. I go to all of our events and it is a wider age range, but in particular, an older crowd doing the work and the volunteerism here. And so I think it is just like a, and I don't think it's universal everywhere. That's going to depend by state and region and everything else. Like, but just as an example of like the snapshots that we do, it's interesting to me. And I think there's a mismatch between the UX and the tool purpose with their audience, which is good for us. And what we can capitalize on is that we tend to have much more volunteer energy and more people willing to do it. But I think our tools are actually worse at decentralized volunteer efforts. They're much more top down. That's what's interesting is like the Republican uh, companies would probably make more money if they sold it to our side. Uh, and I think our team would make more money if we sold it to their side because it's sort of like our, our different audiences would have different value in both like um, product use cases. One of the reasons I like talking to you is that you do pay attention and you're curious and you're learning about the space on an ongoing basis. What do you see in terms of developments in the progressive ecosystem, particularly around tech, but more broadly that you, you think are notable maybe since we last talked, what's going on that people should be aware of that's important, that is an opportunity, that is a gap. Give me some thoughts in, in that area. Some things that I see that are like really positive and encouraging is that we're entering kind of like a 2.0 stage of some ideas and tools. So like some of the relational organizing tech not to say that relational organizing is new, right? There's a bunch yeah, of like, new stuff again. There's a bunch of new stuff again. And I think some of it has learned from the first stuff. And so it's less voyeuristic or it's more oriented towards other ways to keep people engaged. How do we make this valuable and how do we combine it into other tools? Empower the nonprofit. Their tool is launching like a decentralized canvassing that then has follow-up relational organizing mechanics. So they already have the relational organizing. They're adding in this canvassing element that's decentralized. That seems very promising to me. I really like the concept and I wish them a lot of luck with their beta tests going on now. We're seeing like relational applications be added for say like voter reg. Reach has their new voter reg relational organizing tool. Unified did that I think first and well um, and had a lot of interest, didn't have the same user base, but people really liked the way that they could see their friends who weren't registered and get recommendations on which ones to help. 
and they are building the more like social feed element to keep people engaged regularly and then add in the relational organizing mechanics and the tool mechanics that have been built into the kind of natural way that people prefer to interact with each other. There's, I think, improvements there, like 2.0, like on that front. Um, there's the warehouses, I think, like the Community Tech Alliance and the DDX. These are really like important innovations. The work that the DNC tech team has been doing for the last several years is vital. Getting off of Vertica, getting into a modern cloud architecture and opening up the pipes to those things and creating better models. I think those, those will pay off a lot in the next decade. So those are really wise early investments that most people probably won't see or uh, touch, but it has accelerating value. So I think those are pretty impressive. There's a bunch of, I think, stuff that's in the vein of like trying to improve the like HR experience or the people experience of staffers. I was at NetRoots at the new tool showcase, very encouraged by a number of groups thinking about that. An example would be like cultivate in all hands the way that they've really centralized and made the hiring experience better, getting getting us into like one larger jobs board. There's, I think, some groups looking at, can they operationalize like a centralized HR, centralized voter protection deployments from like power the vote. And so I would say like, there's a bunch of things like this where, okay, that that's a thing that needs to exist. Here's a great example, like Stack Labs and SPAN and the, you know, the, I'm going to get the acronym for SPAN wrong, but it's essentially the state party advisor network or something like they're raising money for efforts that don't necessarily need to be independently done by every state party, but it's a thing like every state party needs. So you can centralize it, deploy it according to like the distribution pattern, because hiring a person at every state party for that might not make a lot of sense, but you can deploy fractional people to that. And now it's like more affordable and more sustainable and adjusts to the size of the state. And I think that those, those kinds of things are like different kinds of infrastructure that are really important around people and uh, building a better experience for people and making it much better to work. I think there's been a, a push for like more public salary ranges and better, better salaries that aren't as much of a compromise. That would be, I think, one of the most important things is if we can make that uh, more sustainable. So I would say like there's a ton in this vein. And I'm also really interested in those who are finding ways to operationalize social media into one-on-one -on -one voter outreach. I think that that is an untapped area. It's where people are. We should be trying to meet them better online and listening to them when they are shouting their opinions at us. And it's hard because the big social media platforms do not make that easy on you because that doesn't help them sell ads, right? I think there's a bunch of new ideas and I'm encouraging and supportive of all of them. And I hope that several of them end up being very successful because I think that is a great untapped area of like, here's where people are. They're talking to each other in this venue. We should be organizing it. And I feel that broadly speaking, I don't think we have the right tooling for that to make it viable. And so uh, an example that I think is successful is Push Black. They're an organization that has really built a massive following on Facebook, creates content for their community, and then inserts political content every once in a while. The value there is that it's meeting the needs of the community all the time, and then operationalizing it from time to time for an electoral out outcome or like a voter registration push and that is extremely wise. That's how people interact. So it takes advantage of that and, and does it well. As an example, we provide our voter registration toolkits to lots and lots of people. Push Black is one of the absolute best in the country at getting conversions. The degree to which people actually end up registered and voting is much, much higher. And I think that that's the kind of thing 
uh, I see as really positive. I'm sure there is a lot more. There's whole realms of stuff I know nothing about, like cryptocurrency and the finance and compliance stuff and big media and more targeted types of TV systems. I, I am very uninformed on those types of things. And I try to like limit my brain to field so that I can be useful to my product for now. But I'm encouraged by the people elements, the tech elements. And I think I've seen now two crowd funds between Unified and Shire, I think has announced one. We have a lot of tools like that that should be crowdfunded. That, that's a great model. Act Blue has made crowdfunding a democratic strength. And I think we should take that beyond a donation into a, a one-time marketing effort for a campaign and into creating stable infrastructure that is owned by the people who need to use it. I think that would be a wonderful thing, super hard. Wish them a lot of luck. One of the things that you've referenced several times is Unified, and I don't think very many people yet are aware of that. I had Shion, a founder, on. He lists you also as a co-founder. Um, tell me, from your perspective, what is Unified up to? Why is it uh, important? And where is it at this moment? Yeah, absolutely. And so Sean and Steve, the, the other co-founders, brought me in in 2018 um, to really be kind of like some like political knowledge and to help them. And I was working for a candidate that they were helping and supporting. Uh, and they had like a, some very clear ideas on what they could solve technologically on relational organizing to make it better. Um, and I think that those were really, really useful. And the, the, the general core concept was to try to build a way to get to a drip, like a, an advertising drip. And so what that means for folks who aren't familiar with it is during GOTV, if you have a state with early voting, what we might do is target Nathaniel to try to encourage him to vote. And if he doesn't vote on Monday, we have Jeremy reach out on Tuesday via text. And on if that doesn't work on Wednesday, we have someone else who knows you email you. And on Thursday, we have like your mom call you. And on Friday, like you, you essentially, you look at the graph of a person's networks across all these tools that we have. And you think about how to make recommendations for who people should reach out to that they already know based on the real time outcome of what's happening. Very hard to get all that data right, but the prototype worked extremely well in 2018. And I was glad to work with them. They weren't able to be full time. And so I we, we kind of like decided how to divvy up our efforts. And I, I went off to lead Civitech and continue to like support that team. But Cheyenne has really like evolved his like view of this into, okay, the, the core problem is we have this thing people loved in the last month of an election, right? And then nothing. And so how do you make that sustainable? How do you pay engineers to work on this really hard thing where a lot of the data is not yet built in the meantime? And he really has funded this and like led this and done just, you know, thousands of interviews with activists and different people to come up with what are people, how are they talking to each other now? How can we incorporate this kind of like social feed mechanic and some of the monetization of like streaming and like Twitch as a way to give activists and nonprofits new channels to make money and deliver value and build community because people really like the little mini communities that they're a part of in their Facebook groups or their streaming networks or their group chats. And then connect like a post to a productive action. So when you see a post about voter suppression, it shows you your friends in that state who are not registered to vote. Or let's say in Georgia, when in 2018, when 50,000 people were rejected for their voter registration because their names had hyphens or apostrophes, you can take that list now. We can acquire that via legal and political means in a FOIA, and then you can match it against you know 
a system like this so that people can see like my friend Nathaniel had his voter registration rejected. He may not know that because he's not being informed by the state. We can transmit that from a friend. The hope is that by keeping people engaged and then you can put in front of them tools that direct them in, in like behavioral science, like useful ways to like, you know, generate more turnout or more civic participation or anything. And so they're doing that. That's an alpha now. The team has grown. Cheyenne's really built a really great group of people and they are crowdfunding. So they are raising money from the community to be the owners on this thing. And they're also a, a B Corp or a public benefit company. I am an optimist. I like helping all the relational organizing tools because I think this is right. This idea of let's reach people through the networks they already have. I'm trying to build a geographic way to do that. So you can kind of build your neighborhood collaboration, find people, and then let them talk to their friends. And I think the channel that's missing still is the social graph. We should have a very powerful social graph on our side. We have built them over the years and lost them on presidential campaigns. It's this idea of tailored messaging. We should be thinking about what message should we send to Jeremy as the audience, as an individual, but also what messenger. There are people who will have a better job convincing me to vote for someone than, than, than spam. If we can enable that, tailored messaging at scale is really... I think it's both viable and it has a very real potential to dramatically shift election outcomes for us and to rebuild a lot of the local community element. But the systems to get that are really hard and it takes voter file work. It takes data warehouse work. You have to have a user base. You, if you don't have the graph, you can't generate anything, which requires great product. It's a thing that needs tens of millions of dollars of investment. And all of these groups are trying to do it with like a starting hundred thousand. And I just think that that's really hard. I mean, I gave him a couple hundred. We'll see what happens. Yeah, uh, exactly. No, yeah, <laughs> me too. I gave I also, <laughs> and I'm excited by this idea of crowdfunding more things because I think it, to the point I was making before, it's a different model than the one we could take. I don't think Civitech's explanation is very well suited for crowdfunding. It's not for the crowd. I'm glad that these other tools that are more in front of people, I think, are a really good fit. I know there's something associated with you called Recruiter. What's that? Yes. So this is a new thing from Civitech that we have been working on in partnership with the Pipeline Initiative and Ballot Ready and Contest Every Race and others. Um, for the past two years, uh, the goal of this system is to is it's a the same idea of like the campaign management dashboard. Just think like a election database dashboard and system to track all of the elections in America, like what all of the positions all the way down, like that are relevant, like rural electric co-ops, school boards, soil and water conservation district directors, county commissioners, city council, for really like two purposes. Number one is that we're losing a lot of elections and we have no idea like which ones to by and large the vast majority of them we don't have they're occurring on like 108 days other than the federal election in you know november turnout is extremely low we've done some sampling on this and like the average is like four percent in non-statewide or federal elections and we don't know things like for example how many women in america are on city councils that is a knowable fact. It is a real-time number right this second. No one knows it, right? Because it's hard. Nobody collects that. Those, those cities are not required to report it to anyone. And so it's, again, it's a brute force problem, which we're pretty good at solving at this point. And so it's very similar in our minds to this type of thing we're trying to do. So the first thing we're trying to do is give people a real complete picture of what is actually happening across all elections. 
and the the proxies for is this a you know more democrat aligned or you know whatever whatever tag that a group might care about for environmental purposes or education to be able to track across elections and to be a database against here's all the seats and the upcoming deadline and the eligibility requirements if you're emerge training women to run for office in a state here is like information to better to be able to target at scale so that you can pick you know 500 seats and see volunteers and activists and donors who live in those districts already and you can approach them so that's really like the first goal is to provide a system for us to better coordinate and and compete at scale and to understand the state of elections and the second thing is that I hope that becomes a really useful way for new vendors to have access to a larger market opportunity, which is to say, here's a way to sell something to 10,000 candidates at once or to 500 candidates endorsed by Emily's List or something like that. It's, it's a way of um, building some tooling that could be a lead gen, not just like companies and vendors, but nonprofits and the you know Emily's List and others who sell or offer services for free or who provide endorsements. It's a way to connect people who are local candidates and may not know that they could get an endorsement from the Victory Fund, right? Um, they may not know yet. And so how can we create those lines of transmission to make it easier? So I, my hope is that it, once it's fully realized that it turns around, it's able to do this. And the big thing that we're doing with it is we're taking in this data from source providers and then we're adding, we have the ability for people to add to it. So they can come in and say, I know who that city councilor is, even though you don't, they can type it in, they can add in the demographics and the partisanship and what they know about their local community. So the goal is kind of like almost a wiki-esque approach uh, where if you put in 10 pieces of useful information, you get 520,000 back, right? And that gets us, I think, to completion because I think it's a problem that no one group can solve. And so what we're trying to provide is a platform that will give people this. And so this is something you can read about on our website, Recruiter, and the Pipeline Initiative is our partner who really connects the soft side. And then we're working with party committees and state parties and county parties and precinct chairs on the hard side. And the goal is eventually for this to be useful to everyone. It's it's something we're very excited about and worked very hard on for a long time because of pandemic so that we couldn't do our in-person stuff. Just the ability to have tens of thousands of new records being added by all these groups to fill in this incomplete picture is already just dramatically improving our total understanding of what's happening in any given year. I, I, I want to ask you one question about where is Jeremy in all of this? You've put a number of years of your life into this now. Um, you're building a family. You're probably exposing yourself to new pressures with raising money and having a lot of uh, people concerned about how well you do and how well you build this, not to mention, you know, we're all in this giant effort to retain our democracy and make it more progressive. That's just a minor thing and keep it from be turning into a, a fascist state. What's your level of personal fatigue and resilience and uh, commitment and and, you know, there are also, uh, you know, obviously many, many opportunities for someone like you who's kind of typecast for leadership in certain ways by your history and presentation of self, I guess. What are you thinking just from a personal level about where you are and where you're going? 
Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. Really, it's motivated first and foremost by what you identified. It's that like, it just, it matters. I live here in Texas. We're, you know, we have been losing a long time and it has real world effects. The, the choices that are made to like strip families apart deliberately to cause anguish and, you know, hold children separately from their parents in order to like cynically try to discourage people from coming here. This thing about like tricking people into like, you know, doing a stunt in Martha's Vineyard. Let's lend a few migrants to Florida so that DeSantis can have a political stunt. How's that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like just like just like it just this idea of like not treating people as like individual human beings, not respecting them as autonomous people. It's like deeply galling. Uh, I would say like my background, in, you know, it, it it violates a basic notion of fairness. It's like this this idea of the, the wanton like cruelty or neglect. I'm of the opinion that like we should be trying to like uh, build up like society, make our schools better, make our healthcare better. I'm like, I'm not too concerned about the mechanism of like how exactly we do that, but it should be pretty easy to align on like, we should be investing in this. And as the population grows, it just becomes harder to imagine that like a no government world is the right choice. That just doesn't hold water with me. I think it really matters. And I think elections have really harmful effects on like people's lives, whether you choose to play or not. And I, when, when I, you know, when I'm canvassing and registering voters and people say like, I just, you know, I don't know if it matters. I don't, my vote doesn't matter. And it's sort of like, yes, it does. Not filling this form out right now denies future you the choice to change your mind. You think that you're a citizen, you have the right to vote. Sort of, right? If you fill out the paperwork on time um, and if you try to show up in 30 days from now and you're not going to be able to and like you have prevented your future self that opportunity, there are other people who are affected by your choosing not to do this. And like if you if you share that like sense of empathy, it, you know, it takes something to get people to the door and to, to have them go in and cast a ballot. And it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of cognitive load. And I think about these as system problems like we we should be making it easier to serve people. And so I'm very invested in that. I find that that motivates me. I have always been someone who likes the work that I am doing and like works hard at it because I find it valuable and meaningful. And I really like working with good people that that brings me a lot of like joy and happiness and um, like kind of helping others do their thing well. For me, it's very motivating. I feel like uh, I'm invested in something that matters. It is like a very real outcome. Like failing does hurt me too. Like if we fail to deliver something in time for an election and there's a close outcome that we lose that we could have influenced, that would bother me more. I will say like, I, I have now just had my first child. Like I am having a, a, a very real like um, biological experience of like, I feel a different set of obligations. I feel like I'm the only one, you know, me and my, my partner, we're the only ones who are responsible for this child and no one else is going to do it, right? It's something that's really important and meaningful to me. I feel the weight of that obligation also more now. And I think it the politics piece of that matters. I, I like the kinds of people I grew up with in Texas, the, the teachers that I had, little league coaches, the opportunities, and the idea that like my state is becoming such a problem that we might have to leave it. That like my child, it might not be the right choice to have them grow up here is, is just like, uh, like a personal affront in many ways. And so I find it very motivating. I think uh, I feel the difference. I feel like I, you know, in the beginning of the company, when you're bootstrapping it, like you take less salary so you can pay other people. I had to go back to the board and be like, I'm going to have a baby soon. We're going to need to like 
you know, pay me now. Um, there is a, a limited amount that is perfectly suited to like get me through. As long as essentially I can keep working on this kind of thing, I will find it, I think, very fulfilling. So for me, this is the kind of stuff I like to do. I hope that like one day we can all come tell you about how like our voter registration tools are not needed anymore because America adopted a better system that just automatically did this. And we lost $50 million of value over it, right? That'll be like a good outcome. And I think that uh, that's kind of what we're aiming for. But it is like, it is tiring. And I think you have to find ways to... Um, like build up energy. For me, I love going to volunteer events. I like canvassing. I like walking with the people on the ground. I like hearing their stories, why they're doing it. And so that that kind of like energy I get off of people feeds my desire and sense of obligation to them to continue bringing them better quality tools and, and to eat our own dog food, to be out there on the ground. Like, all right, I found this bug first. That's my favorite sort of thing that happens. And we hire for people who do that. And I find that all of those things like enrich the experience for me. And so I, I hear you on this point, And I think there are lots of people who get fatigued. And I think it can be disappointing when Cal Cunningham and his personal choices lose us a Senate seat and it ends up in a 50-50 tie. Like that is really irritating. And there's things like that that are, I think are um, a regular occurrence. But the key is to remember that like most people are trying their best, you know, for the most part. And they want to be better. Like people, people generally speaking, they want to do more. They want to be helpful. They want to do these things. And I think if you can find ways to empower them, these, the communities do get stronger. And I think that's realized by like democracy vouchers in Seattle and ranked choice voting in New York city. New York had some of the worst practices around like elections four years ago, and it is totally different now. And so I think there's lots of little changes that are really good also, but in particular, we have this problem right now of people running and some of them are going to win who are openly saying that they don't care what the popular vote is and that they can overturn it by virtue of position and technicality and breaking of norms. And the fact that we didn't write a law saying that you have to honor the popular will, it just like, it matters. So I think people, you know, we have to all keep chipping in. There's a, there's a bunch of things that you've said in this interview about the capital structure, about your personal motivation about your reasoning and your vision that are very useful, I bet, in attracting and retaining the right kind of talent. You're still at 50 people, which is a lot of people to manage, but also a pretty small company. Can you connect what you're articulating with that challenge? Because talent for a tech-related company in particular, is all. People with the right skills and the right motivation and the right cohesion and things like that, the right culture, are, are utterly crucial to producing good stuff to change the world. Yes, um, that is 100% true. The mission and the ethos and the culture matters a lot. And I think it always is true. I'm sure you can pay people enough to put up with some or, with, or beat them culture. enough, you know, yeah, you, which is, which are like, not, a, that's not, I hate that. I don't want that. Like it, it's a, I think it's very easy uh, to see why that's a bad choice. We try to be intentional about this. We try to talk to everyone about it. We try to take people's input. We adopt best practices. Like we listen to others. We take their advice. Um, we also, we bring in good people and then we try to empower them to do their thing. Like here's the mission. Here are the goals. 
you're the expert, right? Like, how can I now serve you and getting, how can I get you enough information, enough connections, build your network, grow your capacity, give you the budget you need and the support you need to do this thing you know better than me. And I think we're really good at that. That is a thing where our team is comprised of people who are top-notch election experts. They like, they know things about election laws and voter registration, vote by mail. We have like two lawyers on the team who are phenomenal. They know their domains. Our tools and offerings matter a lot. So we have lawyers informing tech products and we have data engineers and data scientists explaining like how these things work together. They're all better at it than me, right? And so the key is to like not be in the way. <laughs> it's like, let me go out, get you some money, pay you all more, try to get you more friends, um, uh, bring in people who are allies, people who've solved this thing before. Let's all sit and learn from so-and-so. Um, we bring in people and guests uh, for like lunches to say like, just tell us old war stories and what things you want better from our products. And so everyone can just hear it from directly from like clients. We think about this, it's like the team matters a ton, but it's also like the partners that we bring in and the kinds of clients and the support and how we include them in the feedback and how we take advice from our shareholders and investors and the community itself. I think what you're getting at is um, like listening to people is one of the things we do really well. And then trying to design a solution that actually serves their interest and is not merely like, okay, hey, we farmed this off and like now it's your problem, right? Like that's not our goal. We have enshrined that kind of in our cultural values is like putting people first, like not treating vendors as disposable because we pay them, not treating employees that way, not treating partners as a sale to be closed and exploited, right? Like not treating shareholders as someone to like lie to and extract money from. The integrity of what we like say and do is very important to us. And the, I think that's really important from like a product vision standpoint of like, we're trying to build a dashboard that tells you what happened. We really want to be honest and clear in our accounting. And we want that to be enshrined in the way that we do it. So I think that helps. It creates a lot of value. And then the, the other answer is that like, we all need to try to create a more sustainable way to like pay people better. We are trying hard at that. I think we are good and not great. And like the goal is to be great. And the, the answer is like, we're still a little year early on the startup. We provide equity as a way to try to create that upside opportunity for people to make up the difference, but also to align everyone together by having this. I, I mentioned at the beginning, this idea of like the German model. The goal of that is so that the company does better because everyone's incentives are aligned. If, if your goal is money or impact or whatever, like because everyone shares in that reward, then I think it works in everyone's best interest. If like we can return dividends to our movement and to the ecosystem that are like now powering their philanthropy and their organizing work and our staff and team members are making money they can use to like buy a house or start a family and our investors are making money, that's like a good outcome for everyone. And so I think the key is about thinking ahead to designing and aligning incentives and like making sure that the outcomes that we achieve are the reason that someone is paying us as opposed to a model that is less clear, I guess, on that value proposition. We're making a very good stab at it. And the key is that hire people smarter than you to like to do those things um, and give them all the room in the world you can to like succeed at it. Another element that's really important to me is the idea like you can learn from failure. And I think we are very, very good at like um, encouraging people and trying to support them Prior to the pandemic, we ran a really good intern process too, of like bringing in interns and training them up to become data engineers or engineers. And this is both the long-term strategy, like you, you build capacity in a future generation, and it's a, like a important 
equity strategy. Like if, if you are only going to hire from an existing pool that is already unrepresentative of the total population, that you're going to be subject to that. But if you bring in people from underrepresented communities and you teach them and train them who are, and they're interested in that and you invest in them, then you, you're increasing like your access there directly. And so for us, that has been very successful. Where I would say is a challenge is that being fully remote now, um, which is different from before the pandemic where we were all in Austin, that is harder. It's harder to do entry level hires. It is harder to do intern programs and to create enough value for them. And so we have, we have put a pause on a lot of that while we get ourselves more stable. And my hope is we get back to it relatively soon. But I think it is a really big challenge to train entry level people and like organizers in a remote context where you cannot show them what right looks like. And you just have to like dramatically improve the training and onboarding process. And I think we have a lot of work left to do there. And that's something that I hope that uh, we end up being much more successful at. But it's something I think we were great at when it was easy to bring 10 people into the room and sit them down and give them little jobs and have them see you working on something. So they're like, I should be working on that too, and build those habits. That kind of ethos has it made us much stronger early and that has paid dividends. Some of our best employees right now used to be interns, and we've been really good about that. The goal for us is to continue that into the future. To your point, 50 is a new size, 100, 500 is going to be a new size. And like at some point, you just need better and better systems to help make up for the fact that you have less of that interpersonal connection and draw. That last question is quite a softball in a certain sense, but, but uh, you know, you handled it well, as you always do. <laughs> Fair uh, <enough. laughs> um, I, I want to ask you just one question right on the heels of that, which is which I'm just trying to concoct as we go here. But like per personal and corporate reputation are really important. And my general sense of what people think of you in Civitech is it has pretty good heritage at this point. Like People think that you have a lot of talent and that you've you've had some good ideas around you i've also heard like an occasional gripe from a partner or someone else in the space which cut the other way and as someone who's built a company in the space i know as the enterprise gets bigger and you control fewer of the details and you have to deal with things quicker like there were parts of the reputation of NGP software than NGP van that over time weren't as wonderful as they were in the first eight, 10 years. You face complexity and challenges and, and things that, that you take your cuts here and there. So you've made mistakes. You said you've learned from failure. We can all acknowledge that. If there's someone out there who, who feels that they didn't get the right shake from you or, you know, whether it's an employee or a partner or whatever, how would you suggest that they approach you about it? Or how do you deal with like that complexity of managing your external reputation over time? Yeah, totally. I think this is like, this is like extremely important and it's a hard, it's a hard problem to solve for at like scale. First off, like we invite anyone to like, like the best gift you can give someone is like feedback on a thing because it's like, oh, we can make that better now. Or like, okay, we, that seems like, yeah, that seems wrong and we should correct it. Um, I think that that is like crucial. Um, so we, we deeply appreciate any feedback and we like have threads and 
like surveys and we keep track of these things. Um, and the big reason is that, and to your point about how we try to control for it is we have invested very early into a, a larger than normal client success team or like a, you know, like a partnerships team who is available to answer questions, support people, help them use the tools because part of it's that the tools are early and sometimes it's a stab at something and it's an attempt and we need active feedback to make it better. And so I would say a major part of it is to try to keep that door open and, and to acknowledge failure up front. So we have great examples of like very recently someone made a mistake that affected a client and misspent a portion, like a very small portion, but like it, it was ultimately like uh, it was our error. The first thing we did is like identify it clearly. I called, you know, the partner, like I explained, this is our fault. Here's what we did wrong. Here is like how we're fixing it. Here is like the refund of that amount of money. Here's what we're doing about it to like make it right. And so a part of it is like a culture of ownership and accountability to say like, you know, this is me saying like, good job identifying the error is more important that you identify it and we can all work on it than to hide it. Right. Nobody would have known if like the staff member didn't bring it up. Right. Um, and so I think it's like a, um, it's really crucial to just try to like be as affirmative as possible about Jeremy, it's also important how you treat that staff member. Like I remember exactly. things like that. Exactly. Like if you, if you uh, are rough on that person rather than understanding and trying to back them up, it, it changes everything very quickly. Exactly. And so like the way I treat it is like, this is a great positive moment. Hey, <laughs> it's an opportunity. Good job. Yeah. Good job telling us you fucked up. Like, please don't do it again. <laughs> but let's like, can we, where, where can we improve the checklist? Where can we, um, you know, and that's where I take the responsibility and say like, this is ultimately my fault. And here's how we as a team are going to make it right for you. Um, but you don't, you don't. Yeah, exactly. You, it's really, really important to, treat that feedback as positive. For example, here's another good one. There was someone I think who came on your show and had some negative comments about us. The first thing we did was like digest it and say like, what part of this is fair? Like, is this accurate? You know, it affected like some of the people who had been acquired. And so like my thing was to reach out to them and say like, here are the reasons I value your work. And I want to like write about it a little bit to, to think about the fact that this may be affecting different people on the team in different ways. When that criticism comes in, it may be more engineering focused. It may be more sales focused and maybe more client success focused. It might be about me, right? And and it's really important that like, just because it didn't bother me, that it isn't necessarily bothering someone else who worked really hard on that project or feels very personal, the cut that's being taken. And to try to say like, hey, like this feedback seems a little valid. Like we, we should have done this better. How can we do that? Let's, what can we change now? And what, what can we change to like identify this more in the future? And can we bring that person to the fold? And I would say one thing I think we've been fairly good at is bringing critics into the fold and saying, you're right. How can we do this better? And so there was a lot of, you know, I would say knifing around like alloy that I think was unfair at the time, but also very real felt. And so the first thing I did when it was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to be taking this on was to call all the, the, the aggrieved parties and say like, what, what do you want to be different? I will come and sit with you and tell you our clear roadmap, our plan. Here's what we're going to do differently. And like, I would like for you to stop criticizing these individual people in a named way in public, please. Um, but at the same time, there's a heart to this, right? That like you have a, you have a reason you're bothering to like, you know, talk about this group. What can we do to like make that better? And so I think, uh, part of it is like, that's the team ethos, the culture that I try to set, but also all of the other people here are like, you know, 
the kinds of people who are at, like noting noting that and saying like they're advocating for clients. Sometimes it's like I know we want to fix it, but we can't do it for another sprint. We've got to like be clear that it's going to take us two weeks to do this thing. And how do we do that expectation management? And how do we then and commit the resources to make sure we get it right when we've made that commitment? You're definitely right that like this is a it's a growing thing, and as you get bigger, it becomes harder. As you take on like other elements and other acquisitions, there's like new complexities and nuances. And I will be the first to say that we, of course, do not have it all right. Like that is 100%. Like we expect you to find errors. We think generally we will have also found them and know about them and try to be clear about them. Um, But it may feel new to someone else. And so um, part of that is like just being as clear as possible up front. That's what I want to get at. It's like the heart of, I think, my role and like a leader's role of a a growing organization is clarity. Your job is to try to communicate clearly so that lots of people can work together well. And that's really important in vendor relationships and in partner relationships where our job is to serve the interests of someone else right now with this tool. We have a way that we think it could be optimally used. They have their ideas on what they want to do. And it's our job to work harder to build that bridge, to like get it to where what they're trying to do. Clarity is like what I think about most of the time when someone tells me, like when you say, what does Civitec do? I'm like, yeah, I've heard that. That is, we need to be clear. So we have undertaken a bunch of work on rebuilding our website, being more clear. We have our public report up on the page. We're distilling our talking points better and communicating to the board, to um, partners. And for example, creating a client newsletter and like updating people on like, here's what's going on um, and the timeline. And I think part of that is saying, yes, this criticism is valid. The reasons are pandemic plus, I think we're earlier than people think. Um, It's like, we're only three years old. We seem larger, right? Because we've been fortunate, but, um, but that is a very real, like that criticism is, is totally heard and then digested. And then we try to help solve for it. And so um, I think culture is like one of the best ways to deal with that. And to say that like, we try not to like punch down. We try very hard to say like, okay, like we don't really think that's fair, but like that, that is heard. We deal with it. We move on. We focus on the goal. Um, or we try to bring someone in and say like, would you, would you like to describe that criticism? And I've called people and just said like, Hey, I, I just want you to know the channel of communication is open. Like you can, you can call me and you can complain anytime. And we want you to, because we would really like for you to succeed at winning this election. So uh, we like we feel deeply invested in the people that we are serving. You've been super generous with your time. Is there anything else you'd like people to know about Civitech or politics or anything else that comes to mind right now? To kind of come back to this this idea of like, what is it we're trying to do is to like, we're trying to open up access, right? Like we're opening the aperture for people to participate, to to be able to be included. And I think at the heart of many of our problems as an ecosystem is that we are over-reliant on the secretaries of state uh, giving us a file of who is currently registered to vote by county, right? So like if Jeremy is not registered in that county now, um, he's not included, right? Whether or not he's registered in some other place or or just isn't registered or is like a new citizen. And partly that's because that's an easy place to get this source of information. And in certain kinds of elections, persuasion is the most salient thing you can be doing. And so it makes a lot of sense to work off of that as a starting point. Uh, But I think it's really important for people to understand just how many Americans aren't voting and, and just how much of the voter file is actually stale due to churn, like people moving, dying. Like here in Texas, as an example, 
And we had like 2 million people on what's called the suspense list. And that's people who like haven't voted in eight years and the state has sent something to their house and it got rejected is that they don't live there anymore. And the reason is probably because they moved or died. And so what that means is that the denominator, like the, the, the eligible population has stayed the same. And then of your people that you think are registered, that numerator is wrong, right? Like you, you have people who shouldn't be in it and you're missing people who are still in that denominator. So there's this like large gap. And what happens as a result is every type of communication, every marketing channel, your ad programs, your canvassing programs, your texting programs, your email programs cannot see those people because we're pulling from a list that is only the ones who are on the registered file. So um, we don't want to be the only ones you know, who do this, right? Like we want lots of people to attack this problem and encourage them to do so and to come to us if you'd like to, but also to like in their own tooling and in their own organizations to consider the fact that like there is a ton of research on Analyst Institute. There's a ton of research that we have also done, like published separately, but also with Analyst Institute around the value of getting more people in the process. And part of it is that they will vote. So you get the electoral outcome just from registering and talking to them. But there's also this amplifying effect of including them in every other type of organizing. Once they're on that file, now everyone else can see them. And what that means is that they will be included in the conversation. They will be included in polls. They will be included in other types of outreach and in efforts from their precinct chairs or from their local nonprofits. And so I think it's important beyond just the electoral benefit of we can measure net votes and net democratic votes. These people deserve to be invited into the civic conversation and and to be uh, reached out to by all of the other efforts people are undertaking. And so I think there's a crucial element that we need to acknowledge of like, we're accidentally leaving a lot of people out and then not working hard enough to change that paradigm. And that has, we're losing elections as a result, but we're also losing the support of people who live in our communities that, that can and should be included. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? Uh, no, I appreciate, I think those, that those are the main things for us. You asked about like consolidation of tech earlier, and I don't feel that I like got to that second half of your question, which is sort of like, like future casting, what should happen and what should we do? Yeah, take a swing at that. There's a ton of good ideas in the space, but that it's, it's like so crowded that it's causing like cognitive load issues on, on candidates and staff and professionals and on people like me and others, right? Like trying to build and keep up with it. There's a larger conversation about like, it matters to the outcomes. Like how can we consolidate in, an, in a way that serves people's interests that isn't biased, but also it's true beyond just like tech companies. It's true of like nonprofits. We had a lot of things stand up post Trump. And I think many of them were really good ideas. There's been some turnover of those over and over. There's some of them that are kind of like maybe more dormant now, some that are like shifting, changing, renaming. And I think all of that is good. It's so like creating lots of new ideas. But I think there is also like donor fatigue on top of this. And so it's creating like in some ways a fracturing of resources away from solving some of the core, most important infrastructure things. Do you think there's enough? So there's the higher ground model of funding groups, which to some extent, exacerbates that to other extent, depending on what generates out of it, right? Sometimes um, it sometimes they help create an entity that gets absorbed into another and betters that there are donors that are 
you know, applying money with some wisdom or hopefully some are and some aren't. And, and everybody has a portfolio of which has varied degrees of success. Um, do you think there's like a missing other stewardship, like the stewardship, the stewardship has come from the consolidation by NGP van, every action it's come from the acquisitions that you've made that PDI has made the DNC in creating kind of the data that they do. <laughs> there's a lot of hubs, but there's an opportunity for, I suspect, for some some people to aim at the goals of what you're about to articulate or, or in the process yep. of articulating. Yeah, I think that's right. We all have a shared interest here. I don't think it's good for every organization to have to like pay the same price to like outside vendors like Facebook or other things or inside the space because of how like having to do the one-to-one -one sales work means that the prices have to be at a certain level to be able to pay people salaries. There should be some collective markets. There's, this is a thing we should be really good at. I think unions did this particularly well in the past. And I think there's an opportunity for setting some like prices like in a way that makes it viable for some of these things to be more stable. I do think like Higher Ground Labs is a great example of like, we need innovation engines. And I think they're very, that is a good thing. There's not enough money there for like modern salaries, like engineer salaries from like Adobe and Amazon and others are poaching people at such high rates that it's, it's hard to argue that people should stick out for years doing this when they could be making triple somewhere else. The amount of money you need to be more successful at those types of um, deep tech type tools is it's just larger. And the problem is that one group following that model is not going to get us there. And so you, everybody inevitably has to turn to other types of wealth like private equity or venture funds to be able to do that. Or they have to find very large anchor donors to put in enough money on warehousing infrastructure. But we have got to do a better job of creating sustainability. And I think in particular, at the root of this is that there's so few people donating. And I think the way that we've improved the ability to process payments remarkably, and Democrats are much better at that than Republicans, although I think I would argue WinRed is catching up very fast and is just like flaunting the rules about coordination in a way that Act Blue doesn't do and is getting away with, but like their party is taking an active role in designing a better system and, and mapping what we do well and building their own. I mean, you and I have talked offline about uh, Act Blue, which is last I knew looking for new leadership. Do you want to share some thoughts about that in this forum? I'm excited uh, because I think Aaron Hill has done an amazing job creating this organization over the last 15 years and making it wildly successful at, at this thing that it has set out to do, which is like to ease the payments issue and to make fundraising much easier and accessible. And it's a key moment for the organization as as people are trying to like come compete with the payment processor market because they're looking at ActBlue's success and saying, hey, <laughs> what if I got a piece of that? And I think that that's a valid decision and it can be a driver of innovation. But something that was like really interesting about ActBlue is that they made a choice early on to be a nonprofit steward of, of this money-making system. And that to me suggests a model that serves all of our interests. And I think we are hopeful that like ActBlue could do some things now, like create a more modular payment processor 
so that we could use it. And that way, the money would be the benefit of that would be going to Act Blue and the the stewardship in the movement. We don't have to now build that, and we're not necessarily sending it to like a Square or a Stripe or some other kind of competing payments system. The difference between our structures is, I think, we wanted to be more flexible to be able to serve hard and soft side interests and directly be talking to them. Act Blue, in particular, I think, has a different model, which is they can pay like dividends almost or bonuses out to employees and partners and use that money to move it in the circle. And so I think I would say like that, you know, this new CEO search at Act Blue is like well, maybe the most important hire in the next several years for all of us. And we need to all be engaged in helping them be successful. That's my hope. I'm encouraging the Act Blue board to like um, to, to essentially help us raise more money because I, here's, here's a quick example. Like I think Act Blue could have like a series of like almost like mutual fund equivalents or, you know, donation pots that I could give to if 10% of people who voted for Joe Biden donated $10 a month, that's $1.2 billion a year with no large donations whatsoever. And so if we could create vehicles where that money could now go out to county parties to hire staff and that money could go to higher ground labs to make investments and the ownership goes back to the movement, if that money could be go to new media ventures or to the movement cooperative or America votes, it could power the DDX, it could power the DNC. Um, and we could all fundraise into it by having one place instead. Like politics has this very negative outcome because of the competing incentives. When a person is running, the brand is them. They're the only one who wins or lose. The legal entity is unique to them and their staff. They have to take the money directly. It's temporary. And as a result, there's like a pulling apart of all of these people raising money for different efforts. And I think it would be easier if we had also a respected centralized source to put recommendations and celebrities could endorse it and political groups could fundraise into it the way they do for state parties right now. But now that money could go out in a recurring way to power state parties, committees, nonprofits, local groups, and especially, I think, leveling up the hiring inside of county and state party structures where they're the ones on the ground. So, so in my mind, Act Blue has the opportunity because they have been so successful. There's things that I think they are uniquely positioned to do. They have like a lot of opportunities in front of them. Got to, there's probably like a lot of other things that I don't know about on the finance side that they have to think through. But I do think that this hire has enormous effects on what happens in the ecosystem in the next decade because of uh, the degree to which like private entities are going to look at how much money Act Blue has brought in and say, why shouldn't we take that and offer both features and a cheaper price point than Act Blue does? And if I'm a candidate running for office and I can save two more dollars out of every hundred I raise and I get a bunch of other features, the candidates are going to be making rational choices to like use that. And so I think it's really important that groups like Act Blue uh, take an active more active role and maybe a more opinionated role. And I think the reason for that is that we are in a conflict like with Republicans to win enough seats that to like to be able to do things. And getting 49.9% of the vote gets you 0% of the power. And that's a real problem. It means that like we have to play very seriously, even though it may feel better for Act Blue to be like in an un unopinionated role there's sort of a, de a degree to which the things that are successful just necessarily must do more on that front. So I'm, I'm hopeful for them.
this is a great opportunity for them. I'm excited for whoever takes the role. And I just think it, it's like one of those things that like, this could really make a big difference. It's an astonishing evolutionary field of the organizations that operate in the space and the many different centers of dollars and efforts and expertise that are, for example, outside of the Democratic Party or outside of the biggest super PACs or the biggest interest groups that sometimes exist in the data or tech vendors. It is a field that you could not have imagined without just having watched it happen step by step and evolve. And ActBlue is like one of those pieces and one of those potential centers of power that is an important, valuable one that could be bigger, but also makes me ask the question, like, how have we organized the whole thing this way? And is there a way to change that so that the DNC taxes the Democrats and uh, centralizes much more intelligence? But on the other hand, I, I say to myself right away, like sometimes decentralized stuff and people as sensors, like you talked about before, works better. So, you know, it's, there's competing it's, values. Yes. And, and I think the answer is like some things should be centralized and some shouldn't. And like part of that is like dealing with conflicting values, creating the possibility to try both. Right. Like, And how do you make decisions in centralized things? Like, how, you know, how do you set up structures within them? so that they do make the right things and not just make them in the best interest of whoever is guiding them or according to their conception of the world, which may be flawed, et cetera. It's just, it's, it's a Agreed. puzzle. And, and like, and, and ultimately like what's the governance of that, right? Because it's like, we didn't all sign up to be governed by Act Blue's board, right? But like, there's, there's this thing about when a group obtains some amount of power, there's sort of a responsibility to wield it well, because at the end of the day, whatever choices they're making, they can say like, oh, well, we're not deciding for everyone, but they sort of are. And that's a practical concession. If we make a choice, for example, like in leaving out a group of people and saying like, this is too hard, those people like are on no list, right? For unregistered voters. Like if, if we say like, um, this is a thing we cannot do right now, or like that is an active choice and we try to take responsibility for it, note it, but it is a difficult problem set. And it's no one person's fault, no one person's responsibility. And the reality is that like, it's not going to be some democratic effort to like, you know, I think solve it because that's just not the way like a complex interrelated ecosystem can function. But to your point, I think there needs to be some effort at infrastructure level funding in the like tens to hundreds of millions of dollars for the key things that need to be centralized and for those innovation drivers like new media ventures and higher ground labs and the movement cooperative and whoever else is like running tests, the analyst Institute, like they should be getting standard funding from the ecosystem because of the value that it generates for everyone else. And I think it's fair to say things like, Hey, we're act blue. We're going to give you $3 million a year, but we need a seat on a board. Right. And I think that those are, those are the kinds of things that I think can be negotiated and changed to your point. But there's also like for Bonterra and every action, right? Like there's, there's ownership that they have to be responsible to. It seems like they're investing in the space more, and that's great. We have to be cognizant of like who, who it is that ultimately, um, like what their what their goals are, which I imagine and I'm guessing is to go public, and how how do they get there, right? And whether or not that aligns with what we want from them. And I think that that's that's like a tricky problem. So all of this to say, like we tried to think about this early on at at, at Civitech and. Uh, 
to design some things to make this cleaner if we ever end up in that position, which I think is, you know, very far future. But the idea of can you build it in a way that is um, hopefully, like, like I said earlier, like a 2.0 or a 3.0 model, learn from other people, take their advice early and try to make very active choices to promote the interests of the people we are serving, who are the ones who are ultimately paying us. And so if we end up using all of their money to only enrich ourselves to their detriment, I think that is a bad ethical choice. It's important for us to remember where the money is coming from in the first place. It's always super interesting and fun to talk to you, especially when we can get a little philosophical. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, no. Yeah, definitely send your philosophical critiques because, you know, probably misspoke or misstated something or I might be wrong. So I appreciate, you know, when people reach out um, and I want to connect. And it's been very enjoyable for me to listen to you, Nathaniel, but also to all of your guests and the different um, things that they are working on and insights that it gives us. And sometimes like ideas for like, hey, that's a smart improvement to our business that we should definitely take to heart. We find a lot of value in it, and I hope others find some value in this. And we're always happy to share how we've done this, but also to try to be good stewards and partners with anybody in this space. So it's a real honor for us to be a part of it. Well, thanks much. I'm going to have to decide whether this becomes two episodes or one, given the amount of time we (laughs) took. But um, thanks again. That was Jeremy Smith. He's at Civitech.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.